Back to the Gospel of Matthew, we return this morning and there to the 15th chapter and to the paragraph that begins at the 21st verse. Matthew 15, verse 21. This is in your pew Bibles at page 821, if that's helpful. Last time, we found Jesus and the Pharisees, that is, uh, some of the church leaders of that day, locking horns. They had come all the way from Jerusalem to challenge and confront the rogue rabbi from Galilee. The battleground of choice for them was the issue of washing hands before eating, by which they did not mean to raise concerns of personal hygiene, but rather of ceremonial regulations having to do with clean and unclean under their rules. But Jesus handily shows them that, as a matter of fact, it was not his disciples who were in the wrong for transgressing the tradition, but the Pharisees who were in the wrong for transgressing the commandments of God. It was not the disciples who were unclean, defiled by what they were placing in their mouths, but the Pharisees who were defiled by what was coming out from their hearts and out of their mouths. Now, I don't know the mind of Matthew, of course, and we may add this to the list of questions we have for him when we see him. Uh, But it seems likely that by placing the confrontation with the Pharisees that we've just read about and the encounter with the Gentiles up north in the region of Tyre and Sidon and with one Gentile woman in particular, as we shall See, side by side, he's inviting us to notice some things by way of contrast. For one, Jesus is now essentially turning from the Jews to the Gentiles. He is taking a mission trip, as it were, very far, very far to the north, far into Gentile territory. Now, Mark in his parallel passage, uh, account of this history, implies that it was for arrest. But all the same, Jesus is taking a marked turn here. It, it, it could be deliberate on Matthew's part, putting these things side by side here. We've seen Matthew's attention to the Gentiles, after all, and the inclusion of them in Jesus' genealogy from the very beginning of his gospel. Remember Tamar, like the woman we're going to be reading about in a moment, was a Canaanite, a local Canaanite, who bore to Judah two sons, or Rahab, the prostitute from Jericho, or Ruth, the Moabite, just to name a few. Matthew alone tells us among the gospel writers about the visit of the Gentile Magi from the east. And we remember hearing not long ago from Matthew about the centurion who displays faith, exceptional faith in the Lord. We'll see more in this gospel as soon as the Lord willing next week. And of course, Matthew will bring his gospel to a climax with the call to disciple all nations. So we have the Jew-Gentile contrast going on here in chapter 15, and not unrelated, the clean-unclean contrast. Ironically, though though it was the Pharisees who had argued for the washing of hands for cleanliness, you know, just in case 
they had come into contact with a Gentile during the day sometime that day before eating. It was actually they who, according to Jesus, were the defiled. While this Gentile woman we're going to read about is not defiled because of what comes out of her, out of her heart and out of her mouth. Of course, the greatest contrast that we shall find here is also the simplest and the most important. The contrast between their unbelief and her faith. Her great faith. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to see marvelous things from your law. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 15, beginning at verse 21, And Jesus went away from there, that is, of course, from Gennesaret, where he had healed the sick and where the Pharisees had confronted him. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me! And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. This is why our Savior and Lord is always after it. Always after faith in us and an ever stronger faith. This, was, uh, this we learn from watching this story unfold as uncomfortable as it must be for us and imagine how uncomfortable for her. Faith really is the point of this story, isn't it? The healing of this dear woman's daughter can't really be the point since Matthew gives it to us almost as an afterthought. No, the climax of this story, of the encounter, and therefore the main point of this history must be the words of Jesus. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Who could dream of getting a greater compliment? Considering especially the one who was giving it. 
Oh, woman, great is your faith. Imagine hearing your Savior say that to you. Imagine Jesus looking at you and saying, great is your faith. With all of the delight, the surprise, the joy, the blessing, great is your faith indeed. It's particularly striking to hear Jesus say it to this particular person in this particular place for at least a few reasons. There were several things that from a first century Jewish perspective especially were stacked against her. Here are just a few. One is her ethnicity, her race. She is a Gentile. Now we could have deduced that from the fact that Jesus is way up north now in the region of Tyre and Sidon. But Matthew's not satisfied merely for you to deduce or even to know that. He burns it into our consciousness from the very beginning of this account. Behold, he writes, a Canaanite woman from that region. Now this is the only use of that word Canaanite in the whole New Testament. And it was already something of an old-fashioned word in Matthew's day. That designation, Canaanite, is meant to excite in your mind a picture of pagan nations, of wicked people, of of child-sacrificing enemies of God and His people such as inhabited the land of Canaan when Joshua led the people of God into the promised land. Calling her a Canaanite made her as different from an Israelite as possible in race and religion. Of course, this will make Jesus' remark you know, about this woman's faith all that much more striking and memorable. Besides her ethnicity, ethnicity must certainly be this, her sex. Matthew writes, and behold, a Canaanite woman. Now, we've been studying the scripture together long enough, haven't we, as a congregation, now that we remember that it's no small thing that Matthew should direct our attention to a woman, that any gospel writer should give any space at all on the page to any woman, and especially that Jesus should have paid so much attention to women, as we've seen, even giving them a valued and honored place in his entourage, attention to them and and including them in the band of his close disciples. Women in Jesus' day were otherwise considered to be and treated as little more than chattel. Even, perhaps especially, by the Jews who traditionally, near the beginning of the daily morning prayers, say, Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. By the way, he is... Not created me a woman blessing is part of a subgroup that expresses similar gratitude for not have been created a Gentile. Strike two. The disciples, by the way, were not immune to the misogynistic tendencies of their time and and culture and would have inevitably been viewing this woman, at least partially, through the tinted glasses of their cultural worldview. 
Remember how flabbergasted they were to find Jesus talking with a woman at the well. And a Samaritan woman at that verse in John 4. Well, this is even worse. Strike three, she is an irritating Canaanite woman. She's driving the disciples to distraction with her persistent petitioning to the point that they say to, her, to their master, send her away. Now, it's not clear whether they're asking Jesus to grant her request so that she will go away or simply wanting him to send her off. But the point is clear. Get rid of her. Now, Jesus' response, or rather his response is, do not at first strike us as very well Christ-like. <laughs> you know? At first, he just ignores her. Just ignores her completely. Verse 23, he did not answer her a word. Gives her the silent treatment. Now, isn't it striking that Jesus does not answer her? Because as we know, usually he responded quickly to appeals for help. You know, sometimes even before his help was asked, Jesus was all over it. And you know, you know, perhaps from personal experience, how difficult it is to be given the silent treatment. It's torturous. Now, again, it may be the disciples are interceding for her, in a sense, here, by asking Jesus to give what she asks. After all, in the other instances of this verb, here translated, send away, the dismissal comes after the desire has been satisfied. This would also make more sense of Jesus' reply in the next verse. Jesus answers, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Point is, she's outside of the mission. Outside the scope of the mission. You know, at CareNet Pregnancy Center, we are always aware of the temptation to what is called mission creep. Uh, that is, getting away from the main mission by sliding into one direction or one other thing or, or else. In our case, it's often the temptation to become a clothes closet or a homeless shelter or, or a food bank. And we often have to remind ourselves at CareNet uh, who we are and the mission that God has given to us. Well, just so Jesus is making a mission statement of sorts here. It's, it's not for the Gentiles, but for the Jews that he's come. That's his Mission for the children of the covenant. Remember John's gospel from the very beginning makes the point. He came to his own. This woman is simply outside of the narrow mission to the Jews. Well, at least he's talking now. But it gets worse. It actually gets worse. She comes and falls before him. Now she's on her knees in front of Jesus. Now imagine if you were standing there. Men, let me ask you in particular, if you were standing there, you men with even a shred of gallantry in your fiber, aren't you getting a little uncomfortable here? The woman's on her knees. She's on all fours in front of Jesus. 
begging. Does Jesus, does Jesus reach down and, and say, oh no, no, stand up. Does Jesus restore her to dignity and honor? No. He calls her a dog. Lord, help me, she pleads. And he answers, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. This has got to be one of the most uncomfortable moments in the Bible for us as Christians. Jesus' response has been described as harsh, as brutal, as offensive. One commentator describes this as an atrocious saying expressing incredible insolence and the worst kind of chauvinism. George Bernard Shaw once wrote of the Lord's treatment of this woman that this was a time when Jesus was not a Christian. <laughs> of course Jesus wasn't a Christian. He's never been a Christian. He makes people Christians. And as I studied for the sermon, I came to one commentator after another, tripping over themselves in their attempts to remove the sting from the Lord's silence here at first, and then his rough replies. Here's just one of them. The tone and the look with which a thing is said make all the difference. Even a thing which seems hard can be said with a disarming smile. We can call a friend an old villain or a rascal with a smile and a tone which takes, which takes all the sting out of it and fills it with affection. We can be quite sure that the smile on Jesus' face and the compassion in his eyes robbed the words of all insult and bitterness. Oh, can we? Can we be quite sure that Jesus was smiling at the time? No, not really. And besides, the whole power of the lesson here about faith is derived from the fact that Jesus rebuffed this woman and that in what seemed to be a very cruel way. Don't try to sugarcoat this interaction, dear flock. How can we? This is a mother pleading on her knees for the life of her suffering daughter. She is desperate. She's brokenhearted. Now she's humiliated to the dirt. She's coming in hope for and reasonably anticipating mercy from Jesus. And he calls her a dog. That's harsh. Dog was a a racial slur that Jews used to describe the Gentiles. Imagine the, the backlash if, if Jesus had tweeted this response. Or, or if somebody had been there to film it and posted it on their, on their Facebook page. But rightly, it runs right across the grain of our Christian sensitivities, or at least it should. This is shocking. She who knows enough to call Jesus the son of David knows what the Jews think of the Gentiles, and now Jesus is confirming it, every bit of it, with his harsh, racially charged, demeaning reply. Now, you and I know how the story ends, don't we? 
And that's why I think maybe it's lost its shock value for us. And we know that Jesus is after something in this woman, and he will get what he's after. But the lesson of this history for us is precisely in the fact that there is no sugarcoating this. Jesus didn't say dogs with a chuckle. <laughs> you know, even the dogs. You know. Or you're a dog. <laughs> he didn't have some twinkle in his eye. He didn't even have a half smile. Matthew could, Matthew could easily have told us if he did and would have. Everything stood against this woman at this point. She is out of options. Or is she? We don't give our children's bread to dogs, Jesus says to her. What's she to do? What's she to say? How dare you call me a dog? That's what I would have said. Or you, right? In our, our fleshly response, we would have sprung to our knees and popped Jesus right in the face. Or else slunk away, defeated and demoralized. What recourse has she left? Could she appeal to the disciples? The, I could write a whole sermon on this. The Christians in the room? They were irritated with her, and they were out of patience for her. They're thinking in their heart, they're actually thinking in their hearts, yes, Jesus, amen, she's a dog. And Jesus himself has effectively and brusquely slammed the door on her. What is left to do? Only one thing. Persevere. Yes, Lord, she says. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is amazing. It is astounding. Even the disciples standing there, I imagine, must have been amazed by her response. I am. Aren't you? What is she doing? She's persevering. How? By faith. By faith. Now think about it. Nothing's been going well for her today, has it been? Especially since she came into sight of Jesus. There is now not only no reason to think that Jesus will help, there seems to be every reason to believe that he won't. But she doesn't give up. She keeps looking to him. She keeps crying out to him. As it's been said, she effectively gives him yet Another chance to say that she and her daughter are, uh, that their problems are unimportant to him. That, Jesus says, is great faith. That is great faith. My brothers and sisters, would you have great faith? Where to look for the example? You know, it's, it's remarkable that just a chapter back, remember this back in chapter 14, verse 31, the disciples are caught in a storm at sea and 
And the Lord comes walking on the water, and Peter, in a fit of faith, genuine faith, says, Lord, let me come to you. Jesus says, come. Peter starts walking on the water, but then he sees the wind, and what happens? He begins to sink. Jesus rescues him, and what does Jesus say to Peter? To Peter, oh, you of just little faith. In a few weeks, we'll come, Lord willing, we'll be, come to that story in which the disciples are unable to cast a demon out of a boy. And they'll ask Jesus, why can't we do it? And Jesus will say to him, because of your little faith, disciples. Indeed, they will have opportunity in, in just a few verses from now to demonstrate the pathetic nature of their faith, asking Jesus, even after they'd seen the feeding of the 5,000, now, where are we going to find bread for the 4,000? Where in this gospel history shall we look to see great faith? I mean the kind of faith that Jesus loves, the kind of faith that Jesus wants for every one of us to have. To a Canaanite woman. She is our example. Samuel Rutherford, a great Scottish Presbyterian hero of ours, pastor, theologian, prolific author, commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, understood this and so wrote an entire volume on this very text entitled The Trial and Triumph of Faith. He points out that what happened here in the district of Tyre and Sidon is that the Lord Jesus tried this woman's faith, and she triumphed by faith in this trial. Jesus tested her and discovered and even developed the strength of faith in her. Now, be honest. Does not this ring true to your experience, too? If not, if not yet, it will. Put on your seatbelt. This is what the Christian life is really like. This is the way that God so often seems to his children. This is the place in which the disciples of the Lord often, often find themselves having to trust in one who not only remains silent sometimes, but even seems downright hostile to us. There are times when saints must curl up on the floor and say with Job, Though he slay me, I will trust him. Rutherford put it this way, it is faith's work to claim and challenge loving kindness out of all the roughest strokes of God. Here is the only faith that will be described 
in all of Matthew's gospel as great. Transliterated from the Greek, she had mega faith. I want mega faith. (laughs) Don't you? I want great faith. What is great faith? What does great faith look like? We're seeing it here. For one thing, it is knowledgeable. It knows to whom it looks. This Gentile woman addresses Jesus as what? Son of David. This is the name by which he's called six or seven times in Matthew's gospel. It points to Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as Savior, the anointed Savior. When combined with Lord, as she does here in her petition, it's a confession of faith in the person of Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's what she's calling him. He is the Lord, the Savior, the only hope we have. This is the foundation of true faith. You've never heard from this pulpit, well, just have faith in that nebulous, strange, ridiculous, pathetic, (laughs) empty way that it said so many times. Just have faith. Just have faith. Faith is only as good as its object. If you would have great faith, it must be faith in the great one, Jesus, Savior, Son of David, Lord. Second, great faith is humble. Notice she calls out for mercy. Great faith is great because, precisely because it falls humbly to its knees before Jesus and acknowledges from the get-go, I have no claim on you, Jesus, whatsoever. I can give you no reason why you should save me, but have mercy. Great faith comes to the Lord, as the saying goes, with empty hands. Or as we sing sometimes, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Those are expressions of great faith. Third, great faith persists. Even though heaven seems silent, indifferent, even hostile. At times. This has been the anguished experience of people of great faith, including the psalmist, including countless Christians throughout the ages. There will be times when we cannot tell that God has forgiven us. Times that we cannot tell that He has hurt us. But great faith surmounts these experiences and believes even despite all appearances. Remember what Screwtape, the senior devil, has to say to Wormwood, the, the apprentice devil, about all this? He writes, 
Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never in more danger when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That's great faith. That's the kind of faith that the devil cannot best, against which he can do nothing. Or back to Rutherford on the text. Remember, it is said, he answered her not a word, but it is not said, he heard not one word. These two differ much. His not answering is an answer and speaks thus, pray on. Go on, cry, for the Lord holdeth his door fast bolted, not to keep you out, but that you may knock and knock and knock. That's the way to get great faith, dear flock. It's by exercising it. Faith becomes great the same way that Well, John's muscles become great (laughs) by working those muscles, by working faith, they become great with much use. And faith remains certain that hidden in the Lord's no is always his yes. Now, you have all the proof you need for that at the cross where our Savior in love gave himself to suffering and death for you and for me to bring us to God. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world, and it becomes great faith by the grace that meets us even with the sorest of tests and trials while we persevere by faith and not by sight. Amen.